Well, today on Cranford Radio, we're talking with Andy Lancet. It's a name you might not recognize, and he has a profession that is rather unusual. Andy, rather than me explaining what you do, why don't you tell the listeners what it is you do, please? Well, you could say I'm a broadcast librarian. Basically, we take care of all of the air checks. That is uh, what's uh, the record of what's gone out over the air, whether it's full shows or complete days, depending on what we're required to keep. And we make sure that stuff is cataloged and safely kept for future generations. Um, we also go back and retrieve and save and preserve what we can of all past broadcasts. In our case, uh, or in my case, I should say, um, I'm mostly concerned with WNYC and WQXR broadcasts. For those listeners who might not be familiar with, with radio, WNYC, started its life back in 1924 as a city-owned radio station. I believe it was 71 years or so that they were owned by the city and then became owned by New York Public Radio. WQXR also has a long history as a classical music station in New York, originally, well, maybe not originally, but for much of its life, owned by the New York Times, and again, uh, it became part of New York Public Radio. So two stations that have quite a legacy in New York. Very much so. Uh, WMYC went on the air on July 8th, 1924. Uh, we're approaching uh, in 2024 our 100th anniversary. Uh, it was with the city uh, until a deal was brokered. The first uh, payment was made in January 1997, uh, at which point the licenses were turned over, the AM and FM station licenses from the city to the nonprofit WMYC Foundation. QXR actually has a very interesting uh, technical history and broadcast history. Uh, it was the first commercial classical station in New York. It was independent. Uh, it became QXR, WQXR, in uh, December of 1936. Uh, prior to that, it was actually an experimental station, uh, W2XR, and even before that, it had its earliest roots as a what they call a mechanical transmission television station, as an experimental station. Uh, but as a commercial station, beginning in uh, formally in 1936, uh, it was independent until uh, July, I believe, of 44, when the New York Times purchased it. And uh, then WMYC acquired it in a deal uh, in 2009. Radio has a history of not taking very good care of its own history. Once something is transmitted, it goes out on the airwaves, and in many cases, unfortunately, it's lost. Do you think the fact that it was owned by the city of New York in the case of WNYC and the New York Times in the case of WQXR is one of the reasons that much of that history has been preserved? Well, that played a role, uh, and yes, uh, radio has a, a bit of a notorious history of... Uh, sending a lot of its uh, content, uh, past content, into the dumpsters. Uh, fortunately, in the case of WNYC, a lot of older materials uh, actually left with producers uh, uh, when they went left the station, and other material uh, was saved, and uh, much of it that I work closely with the New York City Municipal Archives on uh, is there in terms of lacquer discs and tapes. And uh, as far as QXR, I have to say I was a bit disappointed uh, in the 2009 acquisition that there wasn't as much as I had uh, hoped would be there when we uh, took over the, the broadcast library. Uh, a significant amount of tape, 
not a lot of uh, in the in terms of lacquer disc, um, and maybe I need to explain that a little bit. Prior to tape uh, recording in this country, which is really a post World War II uh, phenomena or technology. American broadcast outlets were recording things on nitrocellulose acetate-coated aluminum discs. Sometimes they're referred to as acetates, sometimes they're uh, referred to as lacquer discs, uh, or even transcription discs. And usually they're 16 inches in diameter. If you consider your um, average um, LP, it's, it's just a 12 inches in diameter, so these are big records. And uh, they run at 33 and a third. They have a different sized groove, a much larger groove than LP. So you're only getting about 15 minutes a side. So when you consider that, uh, obviously in an hour-long program, you have to fill up four sides. And uh, these things take up a lot of space. Um, the aluminum-based ones are heavy. Uh, during World War II, because of the war effort, uh, all of that aluminum was going into uh, the tanks, guns, and airplanes to, to fight the fascists. So uh, the, la the lacquer discs actually were glass-based, so there are fewer of those around because they're far more fragile. In any event, fortunately, a lot of uh, these lacquer discs uh, and then post-war tapes were saved uh, by WMYC, and uh, we work on preserving them, digitizing, and getting that stuff up on the web. Just the sheer size of these recordings, these large records, I imagine that played a part in not keeping a lot of the material over all the years. They just needed to make space to put in new things. Right. Uh, and, of course, these things, uh, like most uh, media, don't last forever, um, although you'd be surprised that some of the uh, older analog formats have outlived uh, some of the newer digital ones, as uh, Bernie can probably uh, attest to. These items take up a lot of space in order to, to be maintained. They need to be kept at uh, a uh, consistent temperature and humidity, uh, relative humidity control. Uh, so that they don't deteriorate quicker. And stations uh, and libraries, for that ma matter, many of them were just not willing to put in that kind of investment. You talk about the acetate and the lacquer discs. Obviously, the next generation, we get into magnetic tape, and that presents some of its own problems, doesn't it, in terms of trying to maintain it? Many, many problems. First off, you, you actually had paper-based tape. Um, we don't have a lot of that, but uh, the first tape that came out in this country actually was uh, a magnetic coating or on a paper backing. And that, of course, is going to tear just like any other kind of paper and uh, be a, an issue when play, for playing back properly. Uh, then you went to acetate. Then to by the early to, to mid-60s, you're into mylar and polyester backing of tape. They have different issues depending on the batch mixtures and how, where these things have been stored and probably more known to um, radio folks these days is uh, what we call sticky shed syndrome, where you have uh, back-coated polyester tape, uh, that is the standard polyester tape with an extra coating added to the back layer, which was supposed to be an advantage, but over time we've found uh, in many cases it has uh, actually been a liability. What happens... Um, it's actually a process called, uh, I believe, hydrolysis. The tape absorbs too much moisture. There are also issues of 
bad batch mixtures because tapes are made in batches and these are chemical formulas and uh, that will vary from manufacturer to manufacturer. And some, sometimes that contributes to the what we call, the again, the sticky shed syndrome or hydrolysis. You end up putting the tape on the tape deck. You start to play it back. It squeaks. It squeals. It leaves a gummy residue on the tape heads. And it's not good for the tape. It's not good for the machine. Uh, so we have to put it through a remedial process in order to play it back properly and save that sonic as what we call the sonic legacy. We've come up with uh, a rather, it might seem odd and if not crude, but we, we throw these tapes into a convection oven. Uh, not too hot, but it's usually about 130 degrees Fahrenheit, 53, 54 centigrade for several hours. And I would say 85, 90, 95% of the time, um, you put that tape after you pull it out, let it cool. That tape will play properly without the gummy residue, uh, and you can retrieve the material and essentially save the broadcast. And the tapes will, in many cases, revert back to their uh, poor state. Um, so we do have that window of opportunity, and we baked, frankly, thousands of reels uh, of tape in order to retrieve that material and digitize it. I was going to say, all this material that you have been able to locate, has most of it been digitized? Oh, I would say maybe 25 to 30% of our collection is digitized at this point. Uh, we still have a huge amount of analog material. I mean, you, you have to realize, uh, of course, all of the old analog stuff has to run in real time. That is the amount of time that it originally took to play the, or record the tape and is, is the time it's going to take to play it back, plus some extra time because you, we need to set up the equipment. It's got to be calibrated properly. Um, and uh, you also want to be sure you're, you're on your recording side that you're going through your analog to digital converter properly and that you're coming out on the other side with the sound you're looking for. So all in all, the time it takes to play back a tape is going to be longer than the original recording, and it's fairly labor-intensive. I can't think of any other people that have a job as an audio archivist for radio stations. Perhaps there was something like that at one time for networks like CBS and NBC, but how did you come to get this job in the first place? Was your background in broadcasting? Yes. Uh, well, actually, I was a reporter for quite a few years. I, I started at WBAI in New York in the newsroom in the early 80s. Did a lot of freelance work. Um, I tended to... Uh, focus on historical uh, documentary work and features. And also, along the way, of course, was saving my own field recordings and uh, collecting uh, a lot of spoken word material that could be used in documentary and feature production. And got into um, preservation work. Uh, initially, it was with, sort of came through some story work as well. And I got working with a, a fellow who had a, a large Yiddish radio collection. And I started working with him, uh, Henry Sapoznik, on the Yiddish radio project. And we eventually got together with Dave Isay. And uh, long story short, it went out as a series of broadcasts uh, over National Public Radio uh, as the Yiddish Radio Project and got, got itself a Peabody. Um, I did a, all of the lacquer disc and tape transfers and sort of was the archivist for the project. 
and that pretty much shepherded me into the field. Uh, I then later went to library school at Pratt to sort of get my official certificate, and was brought into WNYC, actually slightly prior to school, going to school uh, for it, for the 75th anniversary of the station. The then chief content officer um, was uh, someone I knew from uh, Monitor Radio, the broadcast service of the Christian Science Monitor, which used to go out over public radio in the 80s into the 90s. Uh, I did a lot of freelance work for them, and he uh, brought me in since he knew I was familiar with the WMYC collection uh, and uh, archive materials, and so that's sort of how we started uh, in terms of as an offshoot of this 75th anniversary. When I was doing a little bit of research about this, one of the, the most notable broadcasts that perhaps people outside of radio may recall hearing about was Mayor LaGuardia when he was obviously mayor of New York City during a newspaper strike using WNYC to read the comics to the kids who were listening. Are there recordings of that that are still available? Yes, and actually to be Absolutely correct. It was the newspaper deliveryman strike, so the paper was being printed. It just wasn't getting out to the kids, and Mayor LaGuardia felt pretty bad about that. So he actually read the comics uh, over WMYC. This was a 17-day strike in July of 1945, and uh, feeling uh, unhappy about that, he instructed Morris Novick, who was then the director of the station, to... uh, put on a regular program called the Comic Parade, uh, in which we had people from, I believe it was the show, um, Can You Top This? Come on, popular entertainers of the day, uh, come on and read the comics every day during the the strike uh, for the kids of New York, and as well, the mayor on July 1st, let's see, 8th and 15th, 1945, also read the comics during his regular weekly Talk to the People program, which was every Sunday after Pearl Harbor, pretty much, the mayor was on the air. Uh, but the, for those three programs, he, he read the comics in addition to his usual talks. We only have two extant copies, the 8th and the 15th of July. For whatever reason, the July 1st lacquer discs have not survived, but they've been uh, digitized and they're actually, I believe it wasn't, you know, the list for the um, recording uh, list just came out from the Library of Congress. The, they choose the 25 recordings every year, and I can't remember. It was only just a few years ago that that recording, the, the mayor reading the comics, made the list. You mentioned Pearl Harbor. I had read that WNYC was supposedly the first U.S. broadcaster to broadcast the news of the attack on Pearl Harbor. Is that accurate? Well, that's what the, uh, according to the New York Times, uh, I believe it's cited in January of 42 in sort of a review of the year 1941, and the former director Novick uh, have claimed, and um, it's, it's not by a big margin. I think it's 15 or 30 seconds, but uh, nevertheless, uh, WMYC lays claim to uh, being the first. Of all the recordings that you have, what might be the one recording you wish you had that you haven't been able to locate? That's a tough one. Well, there's actually a series of broadcasts um, that we don't have that, well, there's there's a number of them during the 40s that uh, I've been looking for having to do with African Americans in uh, New York City, 
during World War II. Uh, one of them um, is a program that was sponsored for a, about, I guess it was a year and a half or so, uh, by the uh, NAACP, which interviewed a lot of famous people from the Harlem Renaissance. Uh, it was called Those Who Have Made Good, and it was uh, hosted by a young man named Clifford Burdett. There's another program which was billed as, I think it was Your Next Door Neighbor, and it was about an African-American family in New York City and just uh, sort of the, the daily trials and tribulations of getting by as a, a family in New York during World War II. And I wish we had copies of that. Well, we've been talking here on Cranford Radio with Andy Lancet, the archivist for WNYC and WQXR, New York Public Radio. Andy, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today. All right. Well, thank you, Bernie.